0: Hi, Uh, welcome to the New Books Network, uh, New Books in Genocide Studies. My name's uh, Christopher Davy. I'm the Charles E. Scheidt Visiting Professor of Genocide Studies and Prevention uh, with the Strauss Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. And I have with me today uh, Dr. Claudine Kuradusenge MacLeod. She is a, a professorial lecturer of the School of International Service at American University, and she recently published Narratives of Victimhood and Perpetration, The Struggle of Bosnian and Rwandan Diaspora Communities in the United States. It was published by Peter Lang in 2021. Welcome to New Books Network.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you here. So uh, perhaps to get us started, we want to hear lots about your book, um, but it'd be helpful for our listeners to know a little bit more about you. Perhaps you might introduce yourself and tell us about your career, uh, some of your life experience, and then why you chose to work in peace and conflict studies.
1: Sure. So you already know my name. So I'm Claudine. I am originally from Rwanda. So I was born in Rwanda. And um, like most Rwandans who were in Rwanda during the genocide, um, I kind of went through the motion. I was still a a little kid. I was like six, seven years old when it happened. Um, From Rwanda, we went to a refugee camp in Goma, and then I ended up in Belgium. And then I moved here to the U.S. about 11, 12 years ago now. Um, In terms of, like, my career, I'd never really thought that I would be in genocide studies or peace and conflict. I was really interested in just movies in general. Like I just wanted to make movies and things like that. Um, But the conversations that were happening around um, genocide, especially the Rwandan genocide, were very troubling to me. Um, The way um, teachers were talking about it, the type of lectures we're having uh, in the different classes I was taking, um, kind of pushed me to decide that, I either need to be part of a conversation or I just need to get away from just thinking about uh, genocide, thinking about Rwanda and things like that. And as a Rwandan, it was very hard to kind of distance myself from something that was so impactful. Um, so I ended up just deciding that if someone was going to talk about Rwandan genocide, I want to be in the room just to at least create a conversation that will be a little bit more, complex that what we were being taught, what we're talking about in different spaces. Um, so that's how I ended up in this field. Um, in terms of my work and my career, I've, I've been interested for a really long time in stories and narratives, how stories and narratives are created and how they are a reflection of our past, our present, but also our future. And my work has focused mostly on Rwanda, but in the last few years, I've already I've also compared Rwanda and Bosnia in terms of like how stories are formed, especially post genocide stories. My first um, work was actually focusing on um, stories of victimhood and perpetration and looking at uh, the Hutu communities in Belgium. Since I had grew up in Belgium and I had a lot of contact and I, I kind of knew the, 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 the space um, they were all kind of navigating, um, I was really interested in kind of looking at the connection between genocide stories and perpetration or narrative of perpetration. How those narrative of perpetration are also narrative of victimhood in a lot of different ways. Um, so that's what I started with and then I kind of expanded looking at Rwandan in general looking at Rwandan and Bosnian and then lately I've been looking at um, African-American black people here in the U.S. and how all those are kind of connected in the way we understand ourselves and the way we kind of create um, different stories and narrative for the next generations.
0: Thanks Claudine yeah it's really interesting to hear how you're you know this lived experience that's, you know, uniquely yours, but then also quite similar to many of the people that you spoke with and interviewed in the book, which we're going to hear about today. So it's really, I hope that we can talk a little bit more and try and pull out, you know, a little bit of how you saw yourself in the research, even though you weren't, you know, technically a participant, you're still sort of there shaping the project as it goes along.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was a very interesting Space to navigate. I was an outsider, but I was looking into my own experience, into my own trauma through the lens of other people, and kind of trying to navigate that space was um, was challenging, physically and emotionally challenging. Uh, but in some ways, I feel like this is work that needs to be done um, from the, the the perspective of those who are in that position of being scholars but also being uh, part of the community and trying to create um, conversation around what that actually means
0: And mm. that's that's really helpful and I you know not to belabor the point but it, you know, something that we think about within genocide studies or even whole course studies as well is you know the role of you know uh, folks who work and critically analyze and and try and document this past but then also have their own trauma as well. And it's sort of this really challenging space to have to navigate all of that stuff at once. Um, So let's have an overview of the book from you. Tell us a little about what the the project involved and what the the book um, conveys as sort of its main points.
1: So the project was actually my dissertation. I went through a lot of phases trying to understand what I was trying to do and what I wanted that project to look like, right? Um, but the way it turned out, especially for the book, was that I was really trying to understand genocide through the lens of actual people and not through the lens of like systems, of institution. It was really kind of what was genocide through the people who actually either lived it directly? or people who physically and emotionally embody the trauma of genocide. So the those who were either born right before, who were born in the middle of the genocide, or born after the genocide, right? And how the the younger, like the the, the early age of your life kind of dictate a lot of the, the values you have, a lot of the, the way your life is going to be later on. And for a lot of those um, kids at that time, they... Literally experienced the worst thing that could happen in human uh, in like human history, and how would they understanding that and kind of conceptualizing genocide through that specific perspective so that's really what I was trying to understand when I was working on the project and then later on on the book. The second thing um, the book allowed me to do was to connect labels to genocide, especially the, vic- the victim and perpetration label, right? And how it seems like a label when we give it to the people like on paper or like in front of codes and stuff like that. But that label is so more impactful and meaningful when it is attached to generations, right? And how the label of victim and perpetration and perpetrator um, is not just given to individual but it is given to community to societies and it's almost like a mark they have like a physical scar they have on them they have to like find a way to either um, take care of for it to heal or is gonna let let it open and kind of inf- like get infested and in, things like that so really what was that label of victim and the label of perpetration on the society and how um, the different generations were kind of trying to understand the label and either taking care of it or not. And finally, um, the other thing I was kind of trying to understand then was the connection between how we see ourselves and what we say about ourselves, which kind of goes back to the idea of like identities and like narratives of identities, right? So from understanding genocide to understanding the labels that comes with genocide. How then do we understand who we are as an individual, but who we are as part of a society? And then um, what are we saying about then who we are? How are we acting on the stories we are telling? So those were the the questions I had in mind when I was really kind of digging in uh, the fieldwork, looking at Rwandans and Bosnians. And for me, it was important to kind of compare Rwandans and Bosnians because both genocides happen um, close to each other. They had similar mechanism in terms of the way we dealt with um, the pre-, during-, and post-genocide and the way they are often taught in school. And um, it was very important to me to kind of understand that I didn't want to look at Rwanda as just a Rwandan, but I wanted to look at Rwanda as someone who's trying to contribute to the scholarship and someone who's trying to actually show a picture of Rwanda is not that unique. And the, the mechanisms that happened in Rwanda were not that unique. And if they are not unique, then what are the lessons should we take? If we look at Bosnia and Rwanda, what are the lessons we are missing um, if we're focusing on genocide prevention and mostly comparative genocide studies? Um, so that was literally the picture I had in mind for, for the book. Um, some of the central themes of the book are, um, again, identity, like what is to be a Hutu, what is to be a Tutsi, a Twa, what is to be a Bosniak, Serbian, uh, Bosnian Serb, uh, Bosnian Krat, and the history that comes with those labels, right? And how that history often kind of, shape the way we are understanding the conflict and the way we're going to navigate the post-conflict. And then uh, from that connection to to the history and the, the different ethnic and social identities, how do we, people who are removed from the country, so the people in diaspora, how do we navigate the space of being diaspora, but being Fully merge into the country we come from, to the narrative we have created from that country, and are we able to distan- to distance ourselves? Are we able to, um, in a lot of ways, create a life without remembering or without trying to like hold on tight to the trauma we have created and we have experienced in a lot of different ways? Um, yeah, so that is the book. I, I don't know if I, if I actually explain anything, or if I just added more questions and complexity. <laughs> but that was literally what the book was to me, and I hope that's what the book is to a lot of people too.
0: No, thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's really helpful. So, um, obviously, you're well. Maybe not obvious for our listeners, but you're you know, as you said, now living and working here in the US, uh, and. You know, you've demonstrated already kind of this, or you spoke to already, this kind of clear connection to Rwanda and the comment you made earlier about making that transition from wanting to be in the room and to be involved in conversation about Rwandan past and, and politics. So I'm wondering why is it that you chose you know, to work on diasporas from Bosnia and Rwanda in particular? Was there something there that was interesting in terms of a comparison and, and why not choose others as well?
1: Um so the very first reason was um physical safety. Um my first work on um the Hutu identity was really kind of trying for me to understand myself. Like I wasn't necessarily trying to answer questions or trying to like create a conversation, was really kind of trying to grapple um my own questions. I am Rwandan, I am Hutu. So what did that mean for me and for my community? Um, that kind of led to a lot of physical and emotional abuses from a lot of different people, both in the Rwandan government, um, in my own communities, and um, and in the, the in academia. Like I received a lot of backlash for my very first work. Um, so focusing on diaspora in some ways was f- safer for me physically because I didn't have to go to Rwanda. And that is another conversation for another day. And um, emotionally, too, because I didn't necessarily have to grapple with a lot of the trauma I know I haven't had time or haven't been willing to kind of deal with. Um, The second one, um, the second reason, um, I think in a lot of ways, it was also a way to give my community um, a a place for conversation. Um, and that's tied to the third reason. Um, I am part of the Rwandan diaspora. And um, usually, when we look at genocide studies, we focus on the country, on the people in the country. And we don't necessarily take time to look at diaspora community, like conflict based or genocide based diaspora, and how <clears throat> they are uh, a force for good or they are conflict makers uh, in a lot of different ways, right? Um, but looking at diaspora was, I think, an obvious choice for me. Looking at Bosnian and Rwandan um, was also, I think, very obvious to me. I didn't necessarily have to think about any other case. I had other cases in mind, but I was like, that might be project for another time, not for the specific one. Um, and that was due to the fact that I was involved within the Rwandan diaspora. I had a lot of friends in the Bosnian diaspora and the conversations we were having were like similar. And it was kind of in some way scary how similar the conversations were and how nobody was trying to understand why that was the case and how we can create more constructive conversation. And that's a conversation that kind of rehashing the trauma we all went through. Um Yeah, so that's that's why those two cases were kind of it was like an aha moment, like it was just how things were.
0: Yeah, and I you know, again, from your perspective, hearing those similar conversations definitely would have been, I'm sure it sounds like a trigger to sort of explore more. So in the process of doing the, the fieldwork that you, you know, put in for the research and then that went into the book, um, what were some of the issues and challenges around doing the fieldwork with the, with these different communities? Because you know in the book and then in what you've said already, you kind of refer to then communities within communities. And then there's also intergenerational issues, which we'll talk a little about later. So what were some of the issues or challenges with doing this fieldwork across you know, Bosnia and Rwandan and diasporas here in the U.S.?
1: Um the first one was trust. um do they trust me to kind of tell me some of the the hardest things that happened to them? Um, and in a lot of places that was not that was not the case. Like I had to build trust and um that kind of goes with the fact that I am very young and a lot of especially in the Rwandan community we don't necessarily consider younger people when they're talking to older people. Um, So it was like a real space to kind of try to navigate. Um, The second um, difficulty was safety. Um, In the middle of my field work, I got hit by a car, literally coming from an interview. Like I, I had just left an interview, turned around the corner, walked on the sidewalk, and the car hit me while I was walking on the sidewalk. And um, and that kind of started a completely new conversation around um, safety, not just for me, but also for the participants and going back to trust. Uh, could they trust me? Was I going to keep the information to myself? Um, if they were seeing the street with me, what would that actually do? What would I say to the people who are around us? And Rwanda, we in some ways we are paranoid for really good reasons where we don't trust people around us. We don't necessarily talk to people, um, like openly, we don't necessarily share actually, um, information to, um, people we don't necessarily know, even in our family, we kind of, we are reserved in a lot of different ways. Uh, but like that car accident kind of shaped or changed the way some of the conversations, uh, uh, with taking place. Um, and I also mentioned I'm Hutu, which in a in a lot of different ways has a lot of connotation with that. So, um, Hutus were willing to talk to me. Not all, but many of them were willing to talk to me. Um, Tutti's, teasy wasn't as easy. Um, I did end up talking to a lot, which I was really grateful, but I had to build even more trust and show that I wasn't necessarily trying to deny the genocide or be a revisionist and things like that. Um, and I was able to talk to two Twa, which was extremely difficult to to find them, which is an indicator of a big problem we have in Rwanda and as Rwandans in diaspora. Um, for the Bosnian, it was harder than the Rwandans. Um, I had Bosnian contacts which was really helpful. Um, so going through them um, allowed me to gain contact with some community leaders, uh, some church uh, organizations. so that was really helpful. But again I had to build new new ties with them because I was an outsider. but as a Rwandan, sharing my experience uh, or oh, sharing some part of my experience kind of opened some doors because they could see that I might not be able to understand what they went through, but I could empathize and we could share similar experience, both of the way we understand perpetration, the way we understand victimhood. Um but it was a very challenging place to be in in both community. It was extremely challenging. Um on a an emotional level for me um, because as I mentioned, I am pretty sure that I still have a lot of unresolved trauma and uh, field work kind of opened some of the wounds I had tried to ignore for a long time. Um, So I had a lot to process um, while doing the work. But also, I feel like for a lot of people, they took me as a therapist in a lot of different ways where they were kind of trying to process their own trauma through me, which created a bigger issue um, I had to deal with. Um, And I think the last one was kind of a question of legitimacy, like who was I to do this type of work? Um, Who were my parents? Uh, Which family was I tied to? Um, and which name did I know in the field of genocide studies that could kind of vote for me and things like that. So I had a, a, an issue of legitimacy in pretty much most of the cultures and I had to like build uh, trust in order to be able to just have a conversation that is not even part of the, the work I was doing. And then, founded that weird middle space between I am one of you as a genocide survivor, but I'm also not because I'm here on a scholarly um, approach I'm trying to take. Um, so it was challenging in a lot of different ways.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and even your, you know, your description here, you know, speaks to these really challenging issues of trust and legitimacy you're working with the diaspora, right? Um, you know, that's even out of the context of, of a home country, you know, without some of those more immediate security issues, particularly in these two cases, right? It can still be really challenging. And one of the things that you spoke to here that I wanted us to talk about is the, the presentation of these kind of layers, both that you saw within yourself and then in your participants as well in the towards the beginning of the book you do you know i think think a wonderful job in sort of pulling back some of the uh, the pieces and and looking at and examining how we use the phrases perpetrator and victim you spoke of that about this a little bit already I wonder if you could just speak to some of the theoretical thinking that you did and tell us about you know what some of the advantages and then challenges are to using these victim and perpetrator labels
1: those labels are fascinating to me because we are all victims in our own stories and we're all perpetrators in other people's stories, right? Um, so we kind of embody both labels depending on who is telling the stories and how we're approaching that. And as a Hutu um, the label that in a lot of places I was kind of assigned to was the label of perpetration. Uh, but when I was in the Hutu space, that label was the victimhood space, uh, the victimhood of victim label. So it, it was kind of very weird. And also because my first work was looking at the Hutu narrative of victimhood, that set as like a stage where at the beginning of the book I had to engage with the conversation of denying like genocide deniers and what I was in the way I was portraying myself in those conversation, which I think is was problematic in a lot of different ways. Um, not not the way I put it in the book, but the conversation and the 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 emotional. Kind of toll that took on me when I was trying to verbalize that uh, for the book, but the navigating the space of those labels um, is, I think, one of the the hope. I'm hoping that's one of the contribution I'm making with this book um, because those labels are fluid. Identities in general are fluid, but those labels are fluid for people, but they are crystallized and like codify on paper and trying to navigate that space, especially for the younger generation, um, I think is extremely problematic and extremely harmful um, for the younger generation who did not commit anything, who were not even born when the genocide happened or who don't necessarily understand the, the history uh, one of the stories I mentioned in the book is from um two siblings who who didn't know much about the history of Rwanda. Like before we engage in the conversation and the and the the interviews, I literally had to give them a history lesson on Rwanda. Like really like kind of a good hour to two hours history lesson on Rwanda. And then one of their questions then was why Why are they assigned a specific label if they are not even part of the conversation, if they don't know anything about it? Um, and their experience was in a way kind of a summary of what the book is about um, and how the victim and the perpetration identities have created conversations within specific communities and how they have, in a way, Taken away a lot of their their agency and a lot of their the 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 personal journey from the younger generation, um, but also those labels of victim and perpetrator, um, the way they tend to be framed or the way we tend to approach them, especially in the context of Rwanda, is controversial slash taboo in the communities I worked and I kind of uh, uh, lived with when I was doing my research. And that's and for me, that says a lot about how genocide studies and in some ways taking more critical comparative analysis of genocide studies um, has been or should go to in terms of like where we should be heading as a field. Um, because the 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 labels that comes with just the label of genocide itself says a lot about how the next generation are going to experience and navigate their space. But then, if you add the label victim of perpetration, then at that time is it's it's another ball you're kind of creating, another challenge you're creating. And um, I think it was it was interesting to kind of look at that specific space. Um, looking at other kind of ways of trying to understand that in different um, fo- like uh, theoretical foundation I used, um, it was kind of trying to look at the intersection of identity and narratives or narratives of identities. And then how the, those labels are not just labels like assigned as a social constructed identities, but also those labels were creating a specific narrative that was not created by the by the communities by the survivors or by the victims those labels were creating narrative for them by outsiders and they had to kind of find a way to navigate that if they wanted to create a life for themselves
0: Mm. yeah there's there's so many sort of complex sets of agency going on here (laughs) um One of the other things you do, you're speaking about future directions of genocide studies and I guess one of the the really sort of compelling parts of the book is you bring in, you know, this sort of wealth of knowledge from diaspora studies essentially into the context of looking at genocide. Maybe just briefly tell us about some of the important theoretical considerations you had to pull from the diaspora studies, a bit of research that you did.
1: Um, I think when I was kind of thinking about diaspora studies um, or at least diaspora, I came across one article from Lily Shaw, and I think the article is named Turn to Diaspora a Turn to Diaspora, thing. think. Um, and that article for me was kind of like, oh my gosh, this is what I was looking for. And um, the article was looking at the subjectivity of, the, um, of diaspora consciousness in general, but it also kind of tied to Val Vulcan uh, Chosen Trauma and Chosen Glory, especially when it comes to diaspora, um, conflict-based diaspora. Um, it kind of also tied to the complexity of um, the, the, the journey of diaspora, not as a community, but as a, 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 a state of mind um, in a lot of different ways. So how do you tie... Uh, the loss of where you come from, the trauma you have from the journey and from what uh, what happened to you, but also the mythical understanding of your homeland. As someone who left a specific moment and when you left, the, the way your country was kind of got crystallized in your mind and you were not able to move on and create a new image, you always come back to that image you had with you. So... Looking at diaspora and looking at the literature of diaspora, of course I looked at um, some of the early writings uh, from Clifton, saffron and like some of those who kind of helped conceptualize the fit on itself. But there were a lot of newer scholars who were looking at um, diaspora to the lands uh, through the lens of um, like conflict, through the lens of not just, uh, the space you are in physically, but the, the emotional and the psychological space or like the, the idea of consciousness with the diaspora uh, communities. And then how um, diaspora are often tied to the country they come from, both emotionally and physically. And they almost cannot move on because of that connection to back home. And I feel like that was very... Um, that was literally what's happening in both the Rwandan and the Bosnian, uh, mostly for the Rwandan because of how uh, the Rwandan state has been since after. Um, but um, I think that the, that literature on diaspora, the, the new world, the last 10 to 15 years, literature on diaspora, focusing on uh, trauma diaspora, focusing on um, the, the, that mythical understanding of homeland and focusing on... The subjectivity that comes with the 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 the, the journey of the diaspora was extremely essential um, to to the book and to the conversation I was trying to have.
0: Mm, thank you. Yeah, the, and I, this is you know, one of the again just to reemphasize one of the important contributions of the book is that you you start to you know do what scholars you need to be doing uh, in genocide studies and bridging some of those gaps, which is really helpful. So coming back to a little bit more about your field work but engaging with diasporas, um, I'm interested to know how your participants or the communities have responded to your work. I, I don't know if anyone sort of, you know, engaged with you after you, um, you know, you've, you've gathered the information and you started publishing some things, including the book. If you've had any responses to the work you've been doing, uh, but then also... how you've sort of engaged or thought about this issue of involving communities in the process of gathering knowledge, but also producing or gathering data and producing knowledge.
1: Um, I was lucky enough that uh, my first work was kind of looking at a community that felt like they were not necessarily being heard or they weren't necessarily being acknowledged. Um, So Looking at um, the Hutu community through the lens of victimhood, or at least the narrative of victimhood they created, um, opened the door to a lot of interesting conversations. And I mentioned one of the, the experiences in the book where I went to a wedding and I um, everybody at the table ended up kind of asking me a lot of questions about my work, about why I was doing that, about safety, about all those different things. And that kind of opened the door to like a conversation around the project that led to the book. And a lot of people were in a lot of ways kind of accepting and welcoming a project like this. Mostly when I said a lot of people, I'm mostly talking about the Hutus in this case. Um, but also, as I mentioned earlier, that created a lot of backlash where um, I was labeled a genocide denier by um, a lot of Tutsis. I received <laughs> receive threats. I was followed. I had to change my phone number. I had to move several times because of how one community was accepting it and the other community was like, no, you are trying to revise the whole history of Rwanda. Um, and that is the space I was in when I started this project. Hmm. So, of course, I had to be a bit more mindful of what I was doing, who I was talking to you. And people were way more mindful of what I was trying to accomplish. And they kind of knew who I was. So it was either easier to get in contact with them or they just were ignoring that I existed in a lot of different ways. Um but um, the, the, the reception from the Rwandan was both positive and negative, depending on who you're talking to or which ethnic identity you are talking about. Um, but once the, the book was published, um, I remember I had a conference, I think the weekend the book got published. And a lot of people reached out to me after that, saying that they actually want to read it because they feel like in some ways the conversations in the book our conversations they've been having home and they felt like those conversations, they were the only one having them. So this this book was kind of showing them those conversations were happen in a lot of different places. And they had the, in some ways, the right to have those conversations. They shouldn't shy away from those conversations. Um, I, I did in the last couple of months, I did receive some backlash from, some people which I was expected, I was expecting and which I, I wish or I, I think I have addressed at least um, in the first couple pages of the book, kind of talking about how I'm not denying anything, but I'm just kind of opening a conversation yeah. uh, with this book. Um, within the buzzing community, um, I know a few people who reach out to me saying that they finished the book and they really liked what they read. Um, I know a few people who also mentioned that I was giving too much, um, too much spotlight on the perpetrators and how I shouldn't be, um, talking to Bosnian Serbs and things like that, which I was also expecting. Um, but I think so far, most of the things I heard are positive, um, I'm, I'm, let's see the book came out like two months ago so let's Mm -hmm. see what's gonna happen
0: (laughs) (laughs) one of the things that I found particularly interesting is some of the intergenerational aspects of the research you do both you know you've spoken about sort of generational taboos in the Rwandan context but then there's this is a big issue in the Bosnian community as well and there was one bit and I'm not going to read from the page too much here, but um, towards the end of the book, I think you're uh, in, in, in an interview with a, a Bosnian participant, um, and they, they say this, uh, if you don't mind me reading a little uh, quote here, they say many of us are afraid that our children will become fully American and will not care about their ancestors' traditions and values. Uh, and then you go on to say, as far as older generations are concerned, for younger generations to understand their journey and what happened in their homeland. homeland. They need to stay rooted in their homeland identities. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about this, this set of um, themes around the different conversations across generations and perhaps even that tension not only within the trauma and the history of that trauma but then also being in the U.S. as having a very you know, dominant culture in and of itself to sort of see themselves as fighting these battles on multiple fronts
1: sure um looking at the older generations and the conversation I had with the older generations a lot of them were talking about how they were trying really hard to like maintain uh, a sense of cultural identity back ho- like in their own homes through foods um, cultural events through um language and they were feeling that in some ways they were losing the newer generation to American capitalism and what American life is. And for them, that was kind of sad because they were like, we are here already. We don't really have much left and all we have left we're trying to pass on to the next generations, but they don't care. Um, and when I was talking to the younger generation, um, they were in some ways concerned about similar things in the sense of, um, I talked to some who could not speak or even write the native language. They could not actually understand it. They were understanding few words, but they couldn't really understand most of the things that being told to them. Um, so they kind of had that same concern. But one of the concerns a lot of the younger generations had was the fact that the older generations, they felt like the older generations were doing that because they were trying to avoid dealing with the trauma of what happened to them Um, and the fact that in the families they were doing all those traditional things, but nobody was really talking about what happened to so-and-so who passed away or how did they end up in, in, um, in New York, in Denver, in whatever city they are in. Right. Um, So the, the disconnection, especially when you look at generations really came from, Uh, a a misunderstanding of what each generation is trying to do right in the sense of the older generation is trying to focus on moving on yet focusing on uh the, the cultural aspect of where they come from where the newer generation were trying to kind of go back and understand where they came from what happened to their family but because that was not given to them they were in some ways moving on to the next things they know they could actually grasp and grapple with. Um, So like the transgenerational differences in the way the communities were understanding their journey, the stories they were telling, I think was extremely fascinating. Uh, And as an outsider looking at at all these things, I was like, oh my gosh, it's kind of obvious what the problems are. But then when I I was taking a step back and kind of thinking about my own experience, I was like, yeah, I'm definitely in the same situation. All the things they're telling me, I can definitely see that in my own family, um, both between me and my kids, but also with my my siblings, and like the bigger family. Um, And that was extremely similar both in the the Bosnian and in the Rwandan uh, transgenerational understanding of who they are and what they're doing in the U.S.,
0: Hmm. So overall, the book is this comparison of or in many ways is a comparison of these you know, different diaspora experiences across you know, Bosnian and, and Rwandan communities. Without giving too much away, because we want people to go out and you know, buy and read the book, <laughs> what would you say are some of the, the main points of comparison in terms of the similarities and differences between these sets of communities?
1: Uh, one of the first one is the way they talk about the genocide. what events uh, crystallize in the narrative of the genocide um, and then who did what and who impacted whom. That was one of the main the first kind of comparison. The second one is the journey to get here um, not necessarily physically, but the journey also emotionally and mentally to be in the space they are in and how that journey has a very interesting transgenerational kind of differences, right? The third one was what Vulcan looked at in terms of chosen trauma and chosen glory through the stories that are being told. Um, One of the interesting stories I mentioned in the book is how um, several Bosnian Serbs I was talking to were telling me that they're going back to to Serbia and I was like oh cool and then they were kind of mentioning names of like town in Bosnia but they are in their um Serbian area like their Republican Serbs like they were really kind of talking about Bosnia Bosnian town but mentioning that they're going to Serbia right and kind of that says a lot about this idea of like chosen trauma and the stories and narrative they have created from those genocides. Um, and other, other ways of comparison is also how they have navigated the space here in the U.S. At one point I also mentioned how um, being Black in America has also shaped a conversations among the Rwandan diaspora and how they kind of navigate that space too. Um, And finally, what's kind of how they see the country they come from, so how they actually interact with the country, both in terms of like social activism or in terms of like them just ignoring in a lot of ways their own community and fully emerging into the American society, right? So really kind of looking at the way the country they come from have shaped what they do and what they say in the space they are in.
0: Hmm. No, thank you for that. Again, very insightful. Uh, You mentioned earlier, and I have just a couple of questions now to kind of round us out a little bit. Uh, You mentioned earlier a recent article that you published on um, black women's experience within academia. I wondered if you might just say just a couple of things about how you took some of the learning uh, that you gained from looking at identities, as you said earlier, in those sort of fluid ways, Um, and how you applied that to this new bit of research that you've been doing.
1: So this article is part one of a project I'm working on right now. I'm wrapping up right now. Um, And that came from the conversation I was actually having when um, the participants were talking about the experience here in the U.S. as students, as professional as um, people kind of navigating the space of social and racial inequality in the U.S. And as um, a Black woman in academia, I was like, yeah, like I definitely understand what they're saying. You don't need to have uh, a a genocide history to see the the different systems of powers they are navigating and that are preventing them from... um, being who they want to be from reaching their full potential. Um, so kind of these, these understanding of like, you have multiple identities and those identities are kind of shaped by the way you interact with your society or like the waves of, uh, of significance you have in other communities in other spaces you are part of. Um, and as someone publishing in, um, a field that tend to be mostly Western, especially looking at Rwanda and and genocide, um, I, in some ways, want to take a step back and understand, again, going back to like my experience, I feel like my experience kind of guides most of the things I do. Um, So going back and looking at my experience and uh, a lot of the feedbacks I was getting from um, colleagues and people in academia when I was doing my work, I was really interested in how um, identities Kind of box you box you in specific, um, in specific places, and you kind of have to navigate that space, even if you don't want to. Which led then to the article looking at then how Black women in academia experience multiple identities and how they kind of trying to make sense of what happens to them and um, find a space or create a space for themselves in. A place that is not necessarily always welcoming um and accepting not just academia but also the context of the u.s looking at black people in the u.s
0: Mm, yeah and that it's a helpful intervention given you know the a lot of the politics around you know the role of what we often label diversity inclusion initiatives within you know the corporate space, the organisational space, but then particularly within the higher education space as well. It's a really helpful uh, intervention. So you mentioned that this was part one of a sort of a two-part project. Where do you envision this project going
1: now? So I just finished part two, like a couple of weeks ago. And part two, part two is looking at some of the stereotype that are part of um, academia and kind of looking at that through the lens of then the global south scholars. So I'm not focusing on black women per se now. I'm looking at then global south scholars in academia in the U.S. And I'm looking at um, stereotypes like mamming, um, tokenization, and some of those um, that are kind of part of the day-to-day life of uh, BIPOC, um, people of color and kind of, what does that mean to be in academia and why do they decide to stay in academia where they have to take on those specific roles that are oppressive in a lot of different ways and what is the cost on the emotional physical and mental health
0: excellent well we'll look forward to seeing that when it hits the shell so to speak right as an article um So the last thing I wanted to ask you, and you've dropped a few uh, names of of books that have influenced you, but I wondered if there's anything else that you would recommend for our listeners in terms of any sort of literature, fiction or nonfiction, films or plays even, that you would recommend to people interested in the range of topics that you've talked about today.
1: Um, Sure. Um, I think it was 2018, I went to see a play... And the title, if I remember well, is Brave, We Got Story to Tell. And that kind of helped me in some ways conceptualize what I was trying to accomplish with the, the, the project on Black Women Academia. And that one was really looking at um, the history of mothers, uh, of Black mothers in the U.S. So how they experienced tra- uh, trauma struggle and joy and how that kind of shape the way they navigate the space they are in. Um, and that was influential to me because I was getting married at that time. Now I have a little boy and kind of trying to understand that space helped me in some ways, write some of the questions I had for the piece on uh, Black Women Academia. I also mentioned that I am extremely fascinated by stories and how stories are created um, I recently rewatched a movie on um the Cambodian genocide. Um, the title is "Enemies um, of the People," and that one was kind of looking at Brother Number Two, so the the right hand man of Pol Pot, and how he um talked about what happened in Cambodia and how he justified and explained some of the things that happened. Um, so that movie for me was really interesting in terms of like. The creation of narrative of victimhood and narratives of perpetration, and how, as I mentioned, we are all victims and we are perpetrators of specific stories. Um, when I need to to stop reading about genocide, when I need a break, I usually go to Neil Gaiman, and um, I always reread American Gods um, because of the the understanding of your stories and the, 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 the narrative you create comes from different generations of, like, cultural, religious, and social belief system you have. And kind of the, the, the American God book often helps me kind of look at the, the link between our past, present, and what our future might look like. Um, and recently, we had several really good books looking at Rwanda, um, of course, we had uh, Jude Weaver, um, In Praise of Blood. And then we had, of course, uh, Makiya wrong um, Do Not disturb. Like those have been the, the three books or the two books I've been kind of w- uh, working and reading um, while I'm working on the next few projects I'm kind of starting.
0: Very good. Well, thank you for sharing those recommendations. So, Claudine, it's been great talking with you about your book. And again, just in case you didn't catch it at the beginning, uh, we've been talking about narratives of victimhood and perpetration, the struggle of Bosnian and Rwandan diaspora communities in the United States. Um, thanks very much, Claudine. I appreciate your time.
1: Thanks for having me.